I Could Murder a Podcast is proudly part of the ACAST Creator Network. For hundreds of extra minisodes and other content, along with our private Discord server and live Q&As, exclusive merch and much more, consider subscribing to icmap.co.uk. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Warning. The following episode contains subject matter and scenes that some viewers may find upsetting, disturbing, or unnerving. Please note, viewer discretion is advised at all times. Sit back and enjoy. It's coming up to that time of year again where there's concentration mainly on his anniversary and his birthday being so close and you just think, I shouldn't be doing stuff like this. I should be celebrating what was it being his birthday. We would have been having a party for him, no doubt. But unfortunately, we can't do that. So the best we can do is just to place flowers down for him at his grave and we'll spend the day as a family. We haven't forgot him and we'll never forget him. To this day, I've still got James's jumper um, folded to the bottom of a drawer. I've got, I've kept everything, I've used all his toys, kept all his clothes. It's just something that I can't part with. Um, James will always be a part of my life. I don't keep looking at them or anything like that. I just know that they're there. But this certain jumper that I have got, I can still smell James on it. Welcome to I Could Murder a Podcast. We are back once again, and it is time for the audience vote. Mm. This is a case that we've been tiptoeing around. Some people said we weren't ever going to cover it. We are covering it. It won the audience vote. It's one that's going to be very divisive. I'll probably do a little warning right here to say it does involve the murder of a two-year-old child. So a bit of a trigger warning there. But Ben, how are you doing? Yeah, doing good. This one has been uh, a heavy episode to research on on the back of what has been a very heavy series but as you mentioned this is a case we've said before on some live streams and other podcasts that we we would rather not cover however i did shoot myself in the foot in that when the audience vote video was made i was wearing a jumper that said bolger yes on it so on one hand yes i really did not want to cover this case but on the other hand i only have myself to blame 
But it was in your list of maybes for next series. It was. So it you was. weren't. Compl- it's not completely a case of Ben's gone. I never want to cover it, and then we're covering it anyway. It was a case that you. Were, it was in consideration for next series. Yeah. It's not something that uh, we felt forced into doing. If we didn't want to cover it, we just wouldn't have put it in the polls. Yeah. Yeah. And for the 2,065 people that voted for this case, if you don't get a Christmas card from me this year, maybe that's on you. That's as snidey as I get. Threatening not to send a Christmas card. <laughs> and then everyone who voted for the other one, you definitely give them a Christmas card, yeah. right? Yeah. Well, actually, there wasn't. I mean, it was the Green River Killer that came runner up, and mm. he's been runner up twice now. So it's still got a pretty good backing. But yeah, Bolger, yeah, uh, 1,150 people. Yeah. There you go. How you doing, producer Dan? Very good. Welcome back, boys. Very good. I'm, I've borrowed your mug, Tom. Hope you don't mind. Hey, please, have, just treat it with respect and have a good time with it. And also, an exciting announcement before we begin. Today oh. was a. Falling apart. Today was officially Ben's first day working full time on the podcast, but he's already breaking things. <laughs> Sorry about that. Sorry, little Frank Spencer. Glad to be part of the team, guys. Well, you you already were, but now you're going full time on yeah, it. Yeah, they they initiated me this morning. Some good old fashioned hazing. Know, it's not really even begun yet. Really? <laughs> you might get me another coffee though. Yeah, sure. What? One sugar? Nah, I wouldn't trust you. But hot water. Done <laughs> <Stop> me twice. <laughs> nah, nah. You can sure you can make a coffee so so lucky to be going full time on this and, and a, a large part of that down is to you guys for supporting the podcast but also our, our lovely lovely cult members over on icmap.co.uk literally I couldn't be doing this we couldn't be doing this uh, without you and we've got over 105 episodes over there right now we do live streams we've got exclusive merch we've got a discord which is literally the chat is going off every every single day I wake up every morning there's 50 plus new messages and I'm like well, what am I going to find out today because <laughs> I love to be here and yeah, thank you so much. It's just a great community, and yeah, your support is very much appreciated. So if you haven't, and you want to check it out, you can always just sign up for a month and see what it's all about. Yeah. But um, and then dip, then dip. And there's hundred, yeah, as Ben said, over 105 cases over there, and we're going to be trying out new content over there as well soon. Now Ben's full time, more time to kind of write more stuff and try things out. The spin-off podcast, the, spin-off. the illustrious spin-off podcast. Yeah, which we are still kind of come up with a name for but uh, we'll eventually get there for that but that's enough of us waffling on we're going to get into the case so this case focuses around three individuals the victim James Bolger who was killed just a month before his third birthday and his two 10 year old murderers John Venables and Robert Thompson this case caused at the time and continues to cause a great deal of hurt and upset across the UK and like our Sandy Hook episode earlier this series we fully appreciate that some people may wish to give this episode a skip. What we're going to do is we're going to briefly go over the early lives of each of the three individuals before moving on to a detailed timeline of events uh, surrounding James's murder. We'll then move on to the highly controversial aftermath, which is, for me, that's the, the part about this case that I found most intriguing. The tragedy of James Bolger's short life and brutal death is still remembered and mourned by many in the UK and around the world. So there are a few different titles that this case goes by. The murder of James Bolger, the case of John Venables and Robert Thompson, the murder that changed England, the case of Boy A and Boy B, the train track murder and the 10-year-old murderers. So obviously we're going to be covering the case, um, going through the timeline, discussing the early life and also kind of what, looking back on it, what perhaps could have been done differently, whether the treatment of the boys after the case, whilst being 10 years old, if that was handled in the right way, and the kind of the aftermath after that as well, in terms of, like Ben said, maybe even looking at if this happened then today, if, if things would have played out the same way, because I think there's a lot of big key factors which definitely wouldn't have been allowed in today's society, mm-hmm. a lot with just kind of them, their names being shared and stuff like that with the press. But yes, we're going to start off with the early life. 
John Venables was born on 13th of August 1982 in Liverpool, England, to Susan and Neil Venables. The family were middle class and certainly more comfortable than the Thompson family, who we will discuss shortly. John's childhood was reportedly very troubled, with his parents separated when he was young, and his father eventually leaving the family home. From a very early age, John would spend Sunday to Thursday living with his mother, and Friday and Saturday staying with his father. As a result of this, he grew increasingly distant from his father, and often misbehaved when living with his mother. Part of the reason for his parents' marriage breaking down was due to Neil meeting another woman and the pair no longer remaining on amicable terms. Many of the British tabloids, however, would also note that Susan had multiple male friends during their relationship that would go on to become romantic. Like any child of a young age experiencing their parents' marriage breaking down, John struggled to come to terms with it and often wished that they could make things right. So yeah, I mean, there's a theme between the two childhoods of the perpetrators. There's a lot of comparisons that can be drawn, but they're Mm. also so, so different, which sounds like I'm kind of ducking out of even comparing them. But there's a lot of commonalities, but also they come from very different walks of life. But yeah, both their parents' marriages would break down. John is described as a very shy and highly introverted child who had difficulty making friends. One of the few exceptions to this was the friendship that he formed with Robert Thompson, who we'll go on to discuss shortly. John was also said to have been bullied relentlessly at school for, quote, being weird and looking strange. But it is also rumoured that, of the two friends, Robert was most often the victim of bullying, whilst in many cases, John was more of a bully than a victim. Unlike Robert, John did not experience any violence within the family home and had somewhat of a healthy childhood by comparison, with the exception of his parents' split. John did not suffer from any apparent trauma or abuse, though he did very much struggle with his own socialisation. Apparently, as a result of the marriage breakdown, John's mother Susan would frequently complain to the Venables children of feeling overwhelmed with parents in them and also encountered a number of psychiatric problems. As we mentioned, John had more of a reputation as a bully than as a victim when studying at school. Both John and Robert attended the Arnott St. Mary Church of England School in Bolton. Here, John had a reputation for violence at school, almost always against younger children. Yeah, so apparently any children in in his age group or beyond, he wouldn't really cause any problems with. It was always the much lower end of the school years that he would target in his bullying, uh, which unfortunately, yeah, is a sign of, of things to come. Whereas Robert was often bullied by others, rather than asserting any dominance, it is alleged that John had steered his bullies away from Robert at the time that they formed their friendship. So as we've explained, John was a very volatile young man at school, and he would move school on at least two occasions due to poor behaviours. He would frequently stomp through the classroom, pulling other pupils' work down from the walls, and also threw objects at his teachers. He would also hide under his desk when confronted and stab himself with scissors. On one occasion, he tried to strangle another student. So behaviour like that, you would assume potentially that would be escalated or reported? I mean, 100%. I think that's one thing I found very shocking. Well, not one thing. I mean, there's a lot of things, obviously, in this case that I found very shocking. But it was the fact that people didn't seem to step in in terms of the education system. Yeah, I think as well, it's astounding that the school don't flag these things. And perhaps there wasn't as much support back then for for children who were behaving in such a way. It seemed to be, oh, just give, give a teacher's assistant to him, try and keep him quiet. But there's obviously a lot more at play there. And we'll go into it. I mean, the amount of times that they weren't actually at school playing truant yeah. is a huge factor as well. But uh, it didn't. It seemed to be just a case of let's just deal with him when he's here and just we'll leave it as that. Yeah. John and Robert would form a close friendship and regularly spend time together. They would spend their time wandering around the town and looking for ways to entertain one another. Sometimes Robert and John would go to their father's empty flat and watch films together. It is alleged that the pair watched the movie Child's Play 3 on VHS on multiple occasions together, and this was a significant influence on the pair's behaviour. I think I've seen either the first one or the second one. I've never seen it, to be honest with you. But yeah, Chucky, obviously a notorious villain. Yes, but, yeah, I've never, I've good never way to actually. refer to Chucky. Yeah, I still think there'd be numerous 
children under the age of 10 that have watched those movies and not gone on to do what these two of course go on do. to do. I mean, I watched The Exorcist and I didn't yeah. end up spinning my head and vomiting in green. It was actually just all... <laughs> Had a lot of Rabina. Yeah, it was just... Yeah, Vimto was coming up. Oh, oh sorry. And uh, I didn't do that with a crucifix. Could really sting. After the event that we are going to discuss, many neighbours of John and Robert came forward to tell stories of street cats being abused, pigeons being killed with air guns, charity boxes being stolen from shops, and rabbits being tied to railway lines. Though none of these rumours have been proven beyond doubt, one thing can be said for sure is that John and Robert's friendship seemed to fuel the darkest elements of one another's behaviours. I mean, it's always natural for people to say, oh, yeah, they were, you know, once what well, after the event, once yeah, yeah, they have yeah. added context, oh, yeah, they were wrong and they did mm. this and they did that. But strapping a rabbit to rail lines, mm. I think that sort of fits the... the how are they catching the rabbit? Yeah, got to be quick. Really quick. Yeah, no, a lot of people do, uh, it's like a lot of cases, they kind of dogpile in and have all these accounts or, you know, that kind of era, especially very tabloidy, I think, selling stories and stuff like that as well, I think it would, be, would have been rife at the time. But, yeah, I mean... It doesn't surprise me at all there being any kind of animal abuse in this case. So that was a bit of an insight into John's uh, childhood, John Venables. Now we're going to go on to discuss Robert's. Robert Thompson was born on the 23rd of August 1982 in Liverpool. He was the fifth of seven children born to Anne Thompson and a man who later estranged the family. We have struggled to find his name online and it is also rumoured that multiple men fathered children with Anne. Robert was raised and grew up in the same neighbourhood as John Venables, also attending the same school. We're going to go into this in a bit more detail. Robert's Childhood has a lot of similarities with John's, but then also they come from very different backgrounds. So John's family were a lot more stable, had good income. Obviously, the marriage later broke down, but yeah, Robert's childhood in particular gets very, very dark very, very quickly. So Robert's childhood was reportedly highly troubled, with his parents also separating when he was young. Robert is alleged to have, from a very early age, seen his mother and siblings subjected to regular physical and sexual abuse from their father with Robert also being molested and beaten black and blue by his own father. Things didn't get any better when his father abandoned the family. Instead of the family unifying in his absence, the Thompson brothers instead turned on one another, regularly fighting. There have also been accusations that they sexually abused and even raped one another. All of this turned Anne Thompson, the mother, to alcohol, a habit that she developed an addiction to for the coming years. He was described as a troubled child who had difficulty controlling his behaviour outside of the family home and, as a result, was frequently in trouble at school. Robert also found it very difficult to trust people and to befriend new people, but seemed to find common ground with John Venables. It was through meeting John that Robert began skipping school and spending time around Liverpool going on various trips. The pair quickly became close friends and would regularly travel around different parts of the city in order to steal from various shops and stay away from places where they might be recognised. Again, they are aged 7 to 10 when all of this is happening, and both families blame one another for the influence each had on their boys. It was something drastic in terms of how much they were playing truant yeah and people just didn't on one of the interviews i heard the boys were staying out until like midnight and they rather than the parents couldn't really control them but rather than asking for help or making them aware they're worried about social services getting involved and they thought yeah. oh we don't anything i don't get them get involved but they're yeah. all in like we'll just try and we'll just ignore this yeah and i i thought as teenagers we all pull all-nighters don't we and we have you know Stay out beyond our... Curfew. Curfew, yeah, thank you. But these are seven, seven, eight, nine-year-olds when yeah. they're doing this, which is just... Yeah, I mean, I remember, yeah, when you're a bit older, you're a bit out, out a bit later, but as well, it's a city walking around, and it's exactly. not, and it's not yeah, the yeah. best of areas where they were knocking around as well. So it's... it's yeah. And you can only imagine the kind of things they were doing to entertain them. Yeah, I think for, for Robert, staying out on the streets option was possibly a safer one for him. His home life was a bit 
of a, a, a volatile place for him, didn't feel safe there at all. So maybe that was his sort of safety mechanism for not wanting to go home, just stay out on the streets instead. Author Blake Morrison obtained notes from a later NSPCC case study on the Thompson family, and it is quoted as saying the following. The Thompson report is a series of violent incidents. None of them in itself are enough to justify the kids being taken into care, but the sum of them is appalling. The boys, it said, grew up afraid of one another. They bit, hammered, battered and tortured each other. Which, yeah. So that's not enough to justify the kids being taken into care? No, just let them stay and batter one another. Yeah. Hammered. I mean, yeah. I'm hoping that's just him trying to be abstract. Uh, yeah, him be a bit, a little bit out there with his language. But if it, you, you don't know. I mean, and then the idea of the, well, obviously, it's alleged sexual abuse as well. It's like, yeah. well, how much needs to happen before Someone people get involved? Yeah. yeah. And obviously, the the father has left the home. The mother has turned to alcohol. I'm not blaming her for everything that goes on to happen, but there, there's no sort of reprimand for any of the boys' behaviour at this point and it just escalates and escalates mm. and escalates. This Thompson report itself is full of violent instances with details such as incidents of Anne taking her third son Philip to the police station after he threatened one of his older brothers, Ian, with a knife. Ian uh, was aged 15, subsequently asked to be taken into care and when he was returned home, he tried to kill himself by overdosing on painkillers. So even the children that don't want to be home and that kind of, you know, backs up our point of maybe they wanted to be out on the streets instead of in that under that roof. And the notes record that both the parents had also previously taken overdoses in front of the children. It is estimated that Robert did not attend school for at least 50% of the school year every single year. And despite recommendation from his teachers, Robert's parents were never visited by social services. So that's in itself is alarming in the sense if, you know, if the teachers did in fact contact the social services why they didn't bother. Yeah. One of the brothers going to try and ask to be placed into care and being returned home. Yeah. How is that a thing? Is this the school safeguarding themselves saying they did do it when they, you know, I mean, who knows? Yeah, 50% of every school year. We've all played, uh, what is it? Hooky. Hooky. Where's truant from? Is that a thing? Yeah. Yeah, we've all played truant. We've all played hooky. Well, you haven't played hooky. You've only played truant, apparently. Yeah. Yeah. Got truant, then you've got hooky, then you've got uh, Robert Thompson. I don't know. I think okay. that's a graph. I no, think, all right. I think it's you can play, you can be true and you do hooky. hooky. We've all skipped a day or two, haven't we? No, just in case my mum's watching. No, I've never skipped a day of school. Actually, no, long road, pretty much. Loads. Yeah. That's why I need to do the year. <laughs> like, you're never here anyway. I was like, <laughs> okay, I'll go work at Zara for four years and figure it out. Now, definitely, yeah, but 50%. That's not an unnoticeable and, amount, and is that it? That was college, I'm talking about. Yeah. College is when you kind of like, you're a bit, you know, the treat you more like an adult, you can yeah. do, it, not do what you want. But as a primary school... Don't build a pub next to the college. Where was it? Flying Pig. It's not really next, it was quite a long walk. Yeah, I, didn't, I never went there. Yeah, I went there once. Alex Copeland had a really bad cold. We're trying to go under the radar, and it was the Osborne Arms as well. We got served, somehow we were 16, oh, we were 17... And we're trying to go under the radar, play pool in the corner, and Alex took the biggest swig, first swig of his beer, sneezed while it was in his mouth, projectiled all of his beer up the mirror, and then had to slowly go back to the bar and ask for a cloth. Why did he have to slowly go back? Because he didn't want to do anything. He wanted to carry on playing pool. And I was like, no. Yeah, go back to the bar, slowly. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well, there you go. That's the story. So as I mentioned earlier, the boys would stay out late, way past their bedtime and curfew, and often be playing on the train tracks. They apparently would stay on the tracks far beyond 11pm and midnight, often encouraging one another to run across the tracks as trains approached. Yeah, at any age group, I couldn't imagine wanting to do that. No. 
Both Robert and John had parents who had both been through very volatile separations. Both of them had difficulties with attendance, their learning and managing their behaviours at school. They would both regularly skip school, they would both shoplift, they were both violent and they both seemed to encourage and escalate one another's behaviours, with each family blaming the others for the later actions. All these pieces line up in a pattern that made up a pair of incredibly empty and incredibly broken young boys. We've talked before about different, well obviously we've covered quite a few serial killers in our times, we've discussed their childhoods. I think for what we're going to go on to discuss, discuss their childhood roberts in particular is a very bleak childhood but there are definitely some serial killers we've covered that have had far far worse and more difficult times as a child than these two and i think that's what why people find this case so fascinating true but then i guess with the with the couples that we've covered like the ken and barbie killers and um ian brady and mara hinley it's not it's not a case that they both we definitely had a terrible childhood like like carla hamorka and the ken and barbie killers her childhood was relatively straightforward if anything quite nice oh and to counter my point completely none of the serial killers that i recall that we've covered do what these boys did at age 10 so you could argue it's a lot worse yeah well you could argue that the boys didn't have enough time to have a childhood in a sense um and the escalation yeah you could definitely argue is zero to a hundred in terms of what they would go on to do yeah but i can see what you mean in terms of you look at the charters it's not obviously we weren't there and there's alleged abuse and stuff like that but it's it's hard to see a clear pattern of what led to what yeah. with Robert being bullied by his brothers and also John being bullied as well them looking for people that they could bully and wanting to be in charge and wanting to be the, mm. the big tough boys you could kind of see a link to that with what, what sadly would go on to happen but yeah it, it is I'm not surprised that the parents were completely bewildered and surprised when this happened as well mm. So that was the two perpetrators of this case. We're now going to go on to give a bit of a background regarding James Bolger and his family. Although in researching this case, obviously the the event, the background to the two perpetrators, absolutely heartbreaking. So, so harrowing. There are some parts of James Bolger's childhood that was really heartwarming, like the family that he had, the people around him, the type of character that he was, because everything I've watched or listened to in the build-up to this just talks about the murder and that he was a murder victim, but there's so much here that like, genuinely is quite moving. Sometimes you kind of forget when you see the, just see the name, you just think, even dehumans them a bit and you're not hearing about them, so yeah, that's why we, we want to cover him and his family, because yeah, like you said, it's, it's easy to go, Just let's just concentrate on, on John and Robert and just let's see how evil they are, but no, there's also a life that was lost here that needs to be spoken about as well. Yeah. James Patrick Bolger was born on the 16th of March 1990 in Fazakerley Hospital, Liverpool. He would grow up in the town of Kirby, Merseyside, with his mum and dad. James was the first son born to Ralph and Denise Bolger, who would later go on to have another son, Michael, eight months after James's murder. James would also have two half-brothers from a relationship his mother would later enter, Thomas and Leon. Denise, James's mother, remains a pivotal character surrounding this case. She came from a very large family, being one of 13 children, six boys and seven girls, to a working-class family in Merseyside. Though the family struggled to make ends meet, they were raised to appreciate what they had. On her childhood days and her family, Denise said, We didn't have much, but what we did have, we appreciated. There was never a dull moment because there was that many of us. We were always either fighting or getting on. More fighting than getting on, probably. But we've always been there for each other and always will be. I read that. More fighting than getting on, probably. <laughs> yeah, I just Half the time, Rach, I was bloody froze. <laughs> Denise grew up with an appreciation for her life and a yearning to one day start a family of her own. So much so that her priority in life was not career-focused. Instead, she had her aims on meeting a nice man, settling down and becoming a mother. When she was 16, she left school and took up a role of a receptionist at an ice cream factory. Oh, 
Mr. Whippy's busy now. Um, can I take a message? What? That was good. That's probably what, yeah. probably what she said. A couple of years of dating went by before she eventually met Ralph, who worked as a security guard. Sorry, you're not seeing Mr. Whippy wearing that. Okay, yeah. <laughs> Can't I be funny here? It's a cheeky. The pair very quickly fell in love and moved into a bedsit of their own. What's a bedsit? Well, it's not quite um, like you're renting a flat. There's a bed. There's also... A, it's a fold-out bed because you can sit on the bed and then you fold it out. So it's a bed and sit. Is that right? I'm sure we've done bedsits in another episode. Is that right? No, it's like it's not quite an all-in-one flat, but it's more it's like an all-in-one... Yeah, it's all-in-one room pretty much. That's a, it's a like, studio. Yeah, kind of like the size of this, this, lo- this talk, lovely I'm, I'm studio. I'm talking about a studio flat. I'm not talking about the, a st- recording studio. I don't know. What's, what's the difference between a studio flat and a... Studio flat is like one room. Oh, yeah. This is like a small version of a studio flat, I would assume. I thought you knew the way you asked the question. Well, I'm sure we've covered it. I thought we would all knew. No. Well, you don't. We do know, no. What is a bedsit? Uh, a bedsit consists of a single room per occupant, which typically they share the bathroom. Shared house, yeah. So oh, a nice. studio flat of a shared bathroom. Studio flat of a shared bathroom. Two years after this move, the couple fell pregnant and the pair were told to expect a baby girl. Unfortunately, Denise gave birth to a stillborn daughter, whom the pair decided to name Kirsty. This moment absolutely devastated the young couple, but they were reassured by one another as well as friends and family, with Denise claiming that she said the following to herself and Ralph that day. Today is the worst day of your life. It will never get worse than this. And just two years later, the couple gave birth to baby James. So a note to mention regarding uh, Kirsty, the pair's stillborn. Ralph did propose to Denise a few hours after experiencing this. It was his way of showing Denise his commitment to her. And there's a really beautiful quote from Ralph that we will mention shortly. From the moment James was born, Ralph and Denise absolutely adored him. They had been through large bouts of trauma and depression together after the loss of Kirsty. James became their miracle baby. The pair purchased a small family home in Kirby, where they go on to raise James and also make plans for their family to grow. Denise became a homemaker and Ralph would often work six to seven days a week, regularly taking on overtime. The north of England in particular at this time had incredibly high levels of unemployment, so Ralph worked at any opportunity he was given and would regularly take on a variety of cash-in-hand roles on the side at the same time. On his son being born and the memories of losing Kirsty, Ralph said, From the moment I laid eyes on him, he stole my heart. I felt like the luckiest man in the world. Despite our joy, the moment was tinged with sadness because we had lost our first baby. In June 1988, our daughter Kirsty was stillborn. I asked Denise to marry me the day that Kirsty was born, and she accepted. I am not a sophisticated or intelligent man, but I loved her, and that was my way of showing her how much she meant to me. It was quite a cute little quote from Ralph. Ralph describes the couple's wedding as quiet, which is exactly the way we wanted it. They married at Knowsley Registry Office on Denise's 22nd birthday, September 16th, 1989. Ralph was 23 at the time. They held a small family party at their home to celebrate, but as Denise was pregnant with James at the time, they opted to keep it a very intimate gathering as they were both terrified of losing another baby. By all accounts, the Bulge family were an incredibly loving, incredibly popular young family in the local neighbourhood. James had no trouble winning over other small children on the street, and Denise and Ralph had many neighbours that they would consider dear friends. James was adored by his extended family members, having a large number of uncles and aunts who referred to him as Our James. Ralph said of his son, James was a small baby with a smattering of blonde hair and bright blue eyes. He was named after my dad, who died from cancer not long before, and became a lively and happy young baby, bright as a button. Even when he was just a few months old, he tried his hardest to speak to us. 
James was described as a happy and friendly child who loved playing with his toys and spending time with his parents and cousins. From his first moments, he was immediately sociable with other people, regardless of whether he knew them or not, and would often approach neighbours and other family members for hugs. He was a highly confident and highly affectionate baby boy. And yeah, all of this serves as really horrific pieces of um, foreshadowing for, for what would go on to happen. But he's, yeah, he's a, a baby. But yeah, obviously he's a he's a very confident, very affectionate baby. Yeah, very sociable and very trusting. Yeah, absolutely. And and yeah, the innocence of a child. I don't know. Just what, what to talk about the innocence of a child, but I don't really have anything to say. Sounds like a Creed album. It was the innocence <laughs> of a child. Ralph and Denise were very protective of their son, with Denise said to have been cautious to a floor with James, refusing to go anywhere without her baby. She was even afraid to leave him in a room alone for more than a few minutes. Perhaps this was due to fears inherited from the loss of Kirsty. And, as this was their first child, they were learning along the way. Quite a sweet example of how socially aware and confident James was, even from such an early age, James began to say his first words just before he turned nine months old. His first word was apparently Ralph. According to Ralph, James began to refer to him as Ralph instead of Daddy as he had seen so many of their adult friends and family members call him Ralph. And so, every time James would call his dad Ralph, Ralph would very quickly chuckle back, No James, I'm your dad, you have to call me daddy. James had a toy red car which he would sit in and he would regularly say, Ralph, Ralph, come and push me, come and push me. Which is something that Ralph still hears replaying in his mind to this day. And even when Ralph would correct James that he was dad, James would reply, Okay Ralph, come and push me. Ralph, on his memories of James, said, No one will ever know just how much James meant to me. He brought so much to all who knew him in such a short space of time. Never in a million years could anyone have imagined what was going to happen to this most special and treasured little boy. So from the off here, even as a baby, we see that James has got a lot of personality. First word was Ralph, which shocked me and then sort of sent me down a little, very small rabbit hole. Yep. Um, it's interesting facts time. Okay. Yeah. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. 
Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Ben Carter's interesting facts. Interesting facts. Are they? I don't know. Interesting facts. Facts. Cool, cool, cool. Yeah. Yeah, man. All right. Yeah, 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 yeah. On a scale of one to interesting, where are we? About a four. Four. Yeah. About four. Don't put that part in, but All right. All right. So, so that's more interesting than the other ones we've done. So we've got a short window uh, here for the interesting facts. Obviously a very upsetting case. First words. Well, that's quite, quite interesting. Yeah, fascinating. What I've firstly like to reveal to the audience is my first word. More was... tit. Milky. Yeah, I guess. Not Milky. <laughs> no. More, more. Was it that? <laughs> Why did the second one sound in pain? <laughs> stinky. Stinky. You want to imagine you as a little baby saying that. Like, stinky. Yeah. Stinky. Oh, I'm poor. Yeah, because you want yeah. to change. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, it was a good guess. No, it was dada That's for me. Quite that, common. Is that a word? Dada. That's a noise, yeah. Yeah. Okay, well, I made that noise as Is that the interesting word. fact? That no, no, no. I'm go- well, what I've done this week is also asked uh, producer Dan and Tom if... Uh, the, if uh, I told you they haven't got one. Both still a no-go for that, is it? I told you, Mum said she doesn't know it. Dan? Let's have a little look at my text messages, see if she's yeah. replied. Um, no. Cool, so we've got one, don't remember, two, don't know, and three, dada. Yeah, which isn't a word. Isn't really a word. So what I've done, I've, I've tracked down the 15 most common first words in the UK. Now, we haven't got a, a large segment this week. We've not got the budget for that. So I've trimmed it down. What I'm going to do is a, yeah, a, like showed, a showed... What I'm going to do is a showdown... Between producer Dan and Tom. Yeah, and family fortunes, if we... Kind say- of like that, yeah. yeah cool, because that's uh, what we don't have to do all of them, we just do... Exactly, yeah, yeah, cool. Yeah. Well, okay, well, you're going to get the top ones easily, so family fortune styles might might be a bit... Okay. Well, you're still going to get the rest of the board, uh, some of the board. Probably going to, yeah, probably going to be quite quick getting them all. So do you, uh, do you want to go one by one? Yeah, mummy. Uh, okay, Tom got the second most popular. Tom, I just put a T by it. Bottle. Bottle. Drink. <laughs> I don't know. So wait, was I mean, your first is, guess a bottle? Bottle. Yeah. bottle. Yeah. It's not on there, Dan. Daddy. Tom gets answer number one. Well, it's obvious, isn't it? I mean, what else? Well, are why are you trying to be rogue with it, Dan? It's, <laughs> well, it's more interesting, then, isn't it? Liquid. I mean, everybody's going to guess bottle. mummy and daddy. Liquid. Well, you didn't. You guessed bottle. <laughs> really f- thirsty, thirsty. <laughs> Dehydration. <laughs> Bear. Bear. Did you say Bear. no? But there are there Teddy. is. That's a good one. No, oh. it's riffed off yours. There are a couple of. Do- there are a couple of other animals on here. Dog. Yeah, well done. Doggy or dog? Dog or doggy. Okay. So Tom is, is kind of currently 3-0 to Tom. Chicken. Moo. Chicken and moo both knows. Think of uh, greetings or... Hello. hello. I will give that one to Dan. Hi, hiya, hey, heya or hello. That goes to Dan. Afternoon. All right, mate. Bye-bye. Bye-bye is on there. That's Dan's making a comeback. Snack. All right, Alan Partridge. No. Snack. No. No. Yes. Thank you. More. Uh, no. Gimme. No. Probably nowadays. It's probably an iPad, isn't it? <laughs> no. Uh, it probably is. How old? Are you, how old are your? This is current. 
That was current. It's not ongoing. Very current. Not an ongoing thing. The scores are currently 4-2 to, to Tom. Pretty cool there, shall we? Been close a couple of times. What are they? What are they that we're talking about? Children. More than that. Baby. Baby, yeah. More than that. Specifically. That's Any more? Not, I think that's I mean, between you, you've got the kind of the top top three plus dog and no and bye. You did pretty well. Thank you. Some other honourable mentions. Duck, cat, nana, tar, car. Tar. Uh-oh. Tar. Uh-oh. Bubba, bull, cat, nana, duck, tar, uh-oh, car. It's not a rapping baby. Car and tar. I knew which one. I'm actually a bit annoyed I didn't get more of those, to be fair. Yeah. Car. Tar. So, yeah, I mean, that rounds off, uh, I believe, the score 5-2 to Tom Norris. So... Whoa! Nice words. Yeah, wow. Well, fucking hell, that's a, that's a trip. Yeah. Back to the episode. So though obviously James's life was dramatically cut short, by all accounts James had an incredibly happy childhood. James's mother Denise is a very big advocate of him being remembered as more than just a murder victim. She described young James as follows. He was very bubbly. He loved dancing to Michael Jackson videos and making people laugh. My happiest memory of him is him running towards me with his hair bouncing everywhere. He didn't walk anywhere. He'd run into your arms with a big smile on his face. Despite James being a highly energetic, sociable child that loved to run everywhere and loved to meet new people, Denise always took James everywhere she went in his buggy, even if she had to pop to the shops around the corner for a couple of pints of milk. Why? It's just an example. Even if she had to pop to the shop to get extra bread and extra milk. <laughs> the smallest win ever. Even if she had to pop to the shop around the corner for some groceries, she would still strap James to his buggy and take her with him. Unfortunately, on the 12th of February 1993, Denise would opt to walk James with her to the New Strand Shopping Centre in Bootle, and this is a decision that would live with her for the rest of her life. February the 12th of 1993 was a Friday, and a bitterly cold Friday at that. James started his day like any other winter morning. Eating his breakfast in his gym jams, sat in his special chair in front of the fireplace. His father Ralph had agreed to help Denise's brother, Paul, fit some wardrobes in his new house. Denise had asked Ralph if he would take James with him in order to give her a bit of a break, so that she could go shopping and then go and see her mother Eileen. Ralph expressed that he would rather not have James with him due to the number of tools and sharp objects that would be in the house. He was adamant that a very curious young James would want to pick them up and play with them. This wasn't the safest option in Ralph's eyes, and so James was taken shopping with his mother, with Ralph planning on meeting them both at Eileen's house later that day. Ralph walked to Eileen's house late into the evening after spending a day fitting wardrobes. Ralph recalls it was a bitterly cold, frozen evening. When Ralph arrived at Eileen's house, he entered the property to find neither Denise nor James present, and Eileen had a look of horror on her face that he would never forget. Eileen went on to say... Ralph, the police have been on and your James is missing. There's a message on the answer phone for you. You need to get to Marsh Lane Police Station. And it is here that we'll move on to the timeline for the murder of James Bolger. February 12th, 1993. Denise Bolger went on a shopping trip with her two-year-old son James at the Strand Shopping Centre in Bootle, Liverpool. James had had a fun day and this was his first time on a shopping trip outside the buggy. He had eaten some Smarties before he and his mum entered A.R. Tim's Butcher's. After this shop, they were due to go home. In the butcher, Denise lets go of her son's hand so that she can pay the man behind the counter. The payment took a little longer than usual as the butcher accidentally charged Denise the wrong amount. Whilst rectifying this issue took no longer than a couple of minutes, within that time, James had disappeared. 
A panicked Denise frantically runs outside the shop looking for her son. When she cannot find him, she immediately goes to the shopping centre's security team and asks them for help. Tanoi calls a maid and shoppers within the centre are advised to be on the lookout for a little boy. It's every parent's nightmare. The police are notified that James Bolger is missing when he is not found within half an hour. They ask Denise to identify details about James, such as the clothes he was wearing at the time he went missing. Whilst Denise was shopping with her son, two 10-year-old children by the name of John Venables and Robert Thompson were skiving from school. They had made their way to the Australian shopping centre and throughout their day they had stolen various items such as a pot of blue paint, some batteries, a troll doll and some sweets. After hours of skiving from school, the boys wait outside the butchers that James and Denise are in. They lure James outside of the butchers within the minute that Denise let go of her son's hand. CCTV shows all the boys leaving at 3.42pm with James holding onto John Venables' hand. The CCTV footage is grainy, which means identifying the boys is challenging. Originally, the police suspected the boys are teenagers. It has been said that this initial presumption made Denise and James's family feel very comforted as they did not believe children would harm another child. Which you completely understand. You think that, oh, maybe they're just playing a game or a prank, or perhaps they, that James wanted to out by himself and they before he was lost and they tried to, to assist. Him, yeah, yeah, so you, yeah, I definitely can, can understand. If you saw you know, a fully grown man walking up holding his hand, that would be a lot. Yeah, you'd you you yeah you'd go a lot into a lot darker place. And the CCTV footage is very, you know, I've seen it. It's one of those that kind of jumps along a bit. It doesn't. It's yeah. not just fluid with it. Phil's referenced it within um, the animation intro, and you can understand why the police probably did jump to the idea of teenagers because you can't really get a point of angle of how yeah. tall they are really. So yeah, it's, it's one of those where you can see why it set the police back a fair bit. Definitely, yeah. And the, the CCTV image is very very infamous with this case alongside the the later mug shots, but it's. Without context, it just looks, as you say... Quite innocent. Yeah, yeah. completely, yeah. CCTV then shows the majority of the journey that the boys took. Eyewitnesses also played a prominent role in this case. This case is seen as an example of the bystander effect. The bystander effect is essentially when groups of people do not intervene in a situation when someone is in need, as they think someone else will come to the victim's aid. Nearly 40 people saw James being dragged away by the boys. And it's worth noting as well, they actually saw him with blood on his face and he, he wasn't, you know, they weren't walking innocently. It's obviously something that had happened at this point. When I was watching this, I was thinking, only thing I could think of why, yeah, maybe it's the bystander effect, but also perhaps you think it's the older brother? And they're That's taking it, yeah. him home because he's had an accident or a fall. Maybe people are thinking that. Or again, like, like the parents not jumping to the, the worst idea in their head possible because they think a kid wouldn't harm another kid yeah. in that way. If it was an adult holding hands with a, uh, a bleeding child. Yeah, he'd cry and cry. Yeah. Again, but yeah, because you also think maybe it's a son. Maybe again, maybe an accident. Like you, mm. you, know, you don't go to the immediate darkest place where it possibly could go. Well, yeah. And of those 40 or so people that did witness this happening, one individual one man com confronted them and the boys instantly replied it's, it's our younger brother he's hurt mm. himself we're taking him home yeah and that was it eyewitnesses reported seeing the boys at various locations many said that they thought the group were brothers and those who did ask the boys if they needed help were told this exact story by them james had a mark on his head which had come from being thrown to the ground at a local canal so what the boys did is they took James to a more isolated location by the local canal and they tried to convince him to sort of kneel over the edge of the canal which had a quite large drop to the floor in hopes that he would fall in the river. Yeah. But he didn't fall in the river, he fell and landed on his head causing obviously a large bump and uh, a lot of blood to start emanating from his head. Yeah, so they're hoping they'd fall in essentially so they could watch him drown, which obviously is just a horrible dark thought and the fact that they, obviously, there's premeditation there that they, you know, wanted some harm to come to him. 
you worry to think if that did happen, you know, would they find recover the body and things like that as well. Witnesses said that James was being kicked and pulled along by John and Robert in public, which again, if they're going with the, the guise of it being their younger brother, why on earth are people not sort of stopping mm. these boys from... And it's a two-year-old child that, that is significantly smaller than them that, that is being beaten in public and no one's intervening. One even reported that James was pushing his heels into the ground in an attempt to stop the abuse. He was seen crying for his mother. Others who intervened were told by the boys that James was lost and that they were taking him to the local police station so that he could be reunited with his mother. Sadly, none of them followed the boys to make sure that this was true. One lady who was in a park was told by John and Robert that they were taking him to the police station. She gave them directions and then watched as they went the opposite way. Denise has since stated that she does not place the blame on the witness. In total, the boys walked with James for two and a half miles before taking James to a railway track. Night has now fallen and it is dark. And this is where John Vanderbilt and Robert Thompson were gone to commit a crime that would go on to shock the entire nation. The 13th of February 1993, Denise and Ralph Bolger make an appeal for the safe return of their beloved little boy. 14th of February 1993, James's body is found on a railway track by four young boys. Initially, the boys who were playing on the track before they found the body presumed it to be a doll. When they got closer to what they presumed was a doll, they then realised it was in fact a child's body. They raised the alarm and police were notified that a body had been found. A closer inspection of the body found that James had suffered multiple horrific injuries. He had been hit in the head several times with rocks, bricks and a rusty pole that was found near the body. Blue paint had also been thrown into his eyes and onto his clothes. Batteries were found in his mouth. He had been kicked, hit and pushed to the ground. The bottom half of James's clothes had been removed and it was speculated that he may have been sexually assaulted, however this was later disproven. His head was also weighed down by bricks. So James Bolger, not only was he beaten, he was tortured to death by yeah. these two young boys. They, the wounds, the injuries they inflicted on him are absolutely horrendous. It's, yeah, horrific. Yeah, it's, it's, it's the thing of, like, if they pushed him in front of the train and didn't do anything else... It, not saying that that would be okay, obviously, but I'm saying that the fact that they did these things and went got gradually got worse and worse and worse. Seeing the pain that he's in, seeing him cry and then carrying on, yeah, that's when it's like just really underlines how you know how evil they are and, and what they're doing. And it's it's like then even with the 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 canal thinking he's going to fall in, yeah, it's like who'd go on to suffer 42 injuries, yeah, yeah. The fact they didn't stop, they kept going further and further, makes it makes it so dark. That's the thing, I can't work out if in their minds they had realised that they'd done too much to be able to just abandon him and, and you know, mm. or even return him mm. to, a, you know, an area where other people were, or that if they were getting some sort of gratification over the fact that they were torturing an yeah. innocent baby boy. I assume it's the latter because the fact that they've done all this additional stuff to him, the blue paint... Yeah the batteries in the mouth. I mean, they, they stoned him as well. They yeah. were throwing pebbles and rocks at him whilst he was still alive. Yeah. For me, there's some sort of weird, morbid satisfaction they've gained from Definitely, this. Definitely, yeah. Due to the brutality of his injuries, it was hard for the pathologist to find a specific cause of death for James. 
His body had been sliced in half by a train, but it was concluded that he would have passed away before this happened. As Tom said, he suffered 42 injuries in total. Police released the grainy CCTV images of the boys, who they believe to be teenagers, in the hopes they will find James's killers. So the area of the track where it was, it was kind of freight trains would go across there, so it wasn't public. So, so the trains going up and down there, it wasn't as regular as you know, domestic trains. I think it would be a few a day, uh, if that. The, the boys, they obviously, we said before, they were playing on the tracks, and it seems to be, I mean, the, the other boys that found them were playing on the tracks as well, so maybe that was just a thing that over there that, that people were interested in doing. But And as well, with the allegations of them tying rabbits to the tracks and things like that, you feel like that's you know, that was a trial for essentially doing something like this. Well, yeah, they weighed his body down with bricks. Yeah. There's no solace to take, but I mean, him passing away before the train came is, I guess, the only bit of solace you can take from from that. Did they leave him there thinking, knowing that he had passed, or that they wanted to see the train? I mean, you don't don't want to get into it too deep, but um, yeah, it's 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 really a harrowing thing to, to picture or even even question. On the 16th of February 1993, one youth is arrested in connection with the death of James Bolger. He is later released, but is barraged with hate and violence, which forces him to relocate to a new location. That's one thing to note with this. I don't think I've ever seen, apart from maybe the Yorkshire Ripper. But a public outcry and outrage. I mean, and this is d- deep-seated outrage, which has stayed with in that community. We'll go into it in terms of people petitioning for them not to be released. The hatred people have, mm-hmm. like even phone-ins kind of talking about it, people saying, you know, they should be killed, they should have been killed then, which we'll go on to. It's re- it really got, obviously, people angry and, and so upset, which you can, you can totally understand. On the 18th of February 1993, the police questioned around 60 local youths who may have had information about James's murder. However, when they were made aware that two 10-year-old boys named John Venables and Robert Thompson did not attend school on that day of the disappearance, they were immediately made suspects. Furthermore, the police received CCTV footage from a shopkeeper which showed the boys were much smaller than they had originally suspected. In the footage, the boys could, can be seen walking past the brick wall and due to the height of the wall and the height of the boys in these images, they knew the killers were children and not teenagers. In one of the documentaries I've watched on researching this, when the policemen were sent to go speak to the boys, they kind of thought this, we'll just check them out because we need to tick the box because we, yeah. we definitely don't think they would have done it as 10-year-olds, you know. They kind of didn't. Discounted them. They discounted them completely. But luckily they did, they did go talk to them because, yeah, as, as we're going to go on to discuss. Phil Roberts, a detective sergeant from Merseyside Police Station, was asked to go to the Roberts' house to question him. He described Robert as neat, clean, tidy. When he arrived at the Thompson household, he spoke to Robert, who was getting ready for school at the time. Robert came down the stairs and was told why the police had come to speak to him. It's been said that immediately he started crying. I mean, even that, you're going to look at a potential murder suspect who's getting ready for school. Yeah. Robert was taken to Walton Lane Police Station, with John transported to Lower Lane. The two were with their mothers whilst being questioned. So the first initial interview, the boys are very kind of sheepish. They don't admit to anything. They say, we didn't do anything. Never seen him. Never seen him and all that. And basically, we're being very tight-lipped, crying and not, not claiming to be not understanding why they're there and acting out. Which one, one of the policemen was saying, essentially, they could, they could sense something was wrong. And they could see they, could, they were going to get a little bit of information at a time from each interview, but it's going to be a long, patient process in yeah. order to get this out of them. So it was actually Robert who initially confessed in his second interview. He burst into tears crying, I'm getting all the blame, as he claims to say that he told John to return James. The detective would say about this that Robert would lie, admit, lie, admit, lie, admit. So yeah, it had to really kind of work and angle things right and be really patient with them to get any information out of them. Yeah, Detective Phil Roberts, who's the lead investigator for this case, is quite a powerful quote from him. 20 years after this particular interrogation, he said, As far as I'm concerned, on that day 20 years ago, I stared evil in the face. I think Thompson was the leader, but they both attacked James. They were a match made in hell, 
a freak of nature. They went out that day to kill, and if they hadn't been caught, they would have killed again. I'm certain. And that's a good point as well, because it's alleged that before they lured James away from the, the butcher's shop, they had already tried to lure yeah. various children. Yeah, mum had reported that she had to, she just uh, grabbed a child before they had been taken away by them. So that shows, again, premeditation there. So John also had a habit of lying. Originally, he told police that he was not even at the Strand shopping centre, but when he was made aware that Robert had confirmed their whereabouts, he admitted he was at the location but did not hurt James. You took him by the hand and led him out of the Strand shops. He never. He's a liar. Calm down. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Come on. It's all right. Come on. Oh my Yeah, this, this interrogation audio is very, very hard to listen to. Really staples home just how young they are. Yeah, it reinforces their age. But yeah, it's, it's really hard to listen to. John then cries to his mother, who is also in the interrogation room at the time. I never killed him, Mum. Obviously, they questioned John extensively because they started to see the stories uh, not lining up and they started to sort of evidence the fact that John was lying. So they take a break, during which time uh, John's mother reassures him that, you know, look, even if he did something bad, she would still unconditionally love him. Even after John had said quite a morbid statement, which was, if I wanted to kill a baby, I'd kill my own, wouldn't I? In reference to his baby brother. Yeah, so I mean... To even have that thought. But that makes you think that he doesn't see it as that wrong. Yeah. Yeah, that just shows, because it goes to make you think he's not really comprehending exactly what he's done there. Mm. February 20th, 1993. The boys finally confess. They admit that they had originally taken James to a local canal, forcing him to kneel and look at the water. They were disappointed when he didn't fall in and drown. And also there is quite a big drop on the canal edge as well. When this did not work, the boys decided to take James to the railway tracks and repeatedly throw bricks at James. So at this point, he'd obviously been walked to the canal, fallen, had the massive bump to the head, been punched, kicked, pulled along. He's then walked quite a distance to the railway tracks, at which point all these people have, have witnessed him being lured by the boys and not intervened. The boys kept kicking James to the floor as according to a quote from the interrogation, he wouldn't stay down, which is just so horrific. So there was also blood found on Robert's shoe, which confirmed he had kicked James to the ground. To add further to the shock, it is revealed that the boys had unsuccessfully tried to abduct another little boy earlier in the day. Luckily for this family, the mother realised her son had wandered off and found him before the boys could lure him away from her. In addition to this, the original plan was to push James into oncoming traffic. So yeah, imagine seeing the news later that, that day and you're the parents of that boy. Yeah. Although many did not want to believe it and could not believe it, the police charged Robert Thompson and John Venables with the murder of two-year-old James Bolger, and the pair obviously were 10 years old at the time of their charges. February 22nd, 1993. The public was furious. The boys would make their first appearance at South Sefton Magistrate's Court. There are scenes of chaos, and yeah, Thomas alluded to this, the public were absolutely enraged by this. I mean, the whole, the whole world was, but particularly the north of England were just completely overwhelmed by this situation. There are scenes of chaos. Members of the public throw insults and nearly riot as the two children are escorted in police vans to the court. The children now become formally known as Child A and Child B. 
The 1st of March 1993, the funeral was held for James Bolger. He was laid to rest at Kirkdale Cemetery in Liverpool. He had fields of flowers dedicated to him. Mourners and the general public waited outside the church with the sacred heart overcome with grief. James was able to hear his favourite singer, Michael Jackson, one last time and was laid to rest with one of his teddies, a rabbit toy and a chair created by his father. On the 1st of November 1993, the trial for the murder of James Bolger commences. In 1993, the law stated that children between the ages of 10 and 14 years old did not necessarily know right from wrong, and they were dolly incapax, which is Latin for incapable of evil. This meant that they could not be prosecuted unless there was beyond reasonable doubt that the children knew right from wrong at the time of the offence. This law formally changed in 1998. During this case, the children were tried as adults. Both children denied the allegations against them. The 10-year-old boys had to have raised chairs in the dock so they could see over the stand. The families attended. Ralph Bolger was also present throughout the trial and in court. However, Denise was not. She was pregnant at the time and was advised by the doctors that the stress of the case was not healthy for her or her baby. She did attend the verdict of the trial. The boys did not speak in court. Instead, the CCTV footage used to identify the boys was played to the jury. All of James's injuries were presented to the court. For the majority of the trial, the boys looked down at the floor ashamed. Throughout the trial, prosecutors presented a theory that Robert Thompson was the dominant child between him and John. They posed that Robert was the leader, and although there is not much clear evidence for this, the prosecution argued that John Venables and Robert Thompson had demonstrated a clear ability to lie following their police interviews, whereas the defence argued that they had a diminished responsibility due to their age. The witnesses that had seen the boys on that day were called to the stand. Those who had seen the bump on James's head told the jury of his injury. They also told of the aggressive way in which the boy dragged James along the two and a half mile walk. The mother who had also seen John and Robert try to lure her child away initially also was called to the stand, being labelled Mrs Z. 24th of November 1993 John Venables and Robert Thompson are found guilty of the murder of James Bolger and are sentenced to a minimum of eight years. Due to their age, the boys could not be placed in prison. Instead, they had to be detained at Her Majesty's pleasure, which meant that they would be sent to a secure facility designed for young offenders. Many found that this was too lenient a sentence for the boys. In these centres, the focus is aimed at the welfare of the children. At the time, it would have cost roughly £3,000 to keep the boys detained for one week. A week? That's a, a pricey week, isn't it? That figure was taxpayer money, so obviously there was a lot of outrage from the general public. Well, not only with the sentence, but the facility in which the sentence would be served. Here, the boys would have therapy, and it was said that after the murder of James Bolger, John Venables suffered from PTSD. After each trial, he would change his clothes, claiming that he could smell James on him, which I think the general public probably found very hard to find any kind of ounce of sympathy for. Oh, yeah, of course, yeah. The judge allows for the photographs taken of John and Robert to be publicised, saying that he did this because the public interest overrode the interest of the defendants. There was a need for an informed public debate on crimes committed by young children. See, that is a huge talking point. That's what I was saying earlier on about how things would be done differently today. I don't get who that benefits by publishing them or by not publishing by publishing them by publishing them it publishing them me, and the names for me that paints a huge target on both of them yeah 100% but we'll go on to talk about how they try to erase those targets in the coming years but i can only assume this was done as a way to sort of not smooth over but i think the sentence is incredibly lenient for a 10 year old yeah go on do you not they're not fully formed brains so i mean like the idea is for people to be put in prison to be reformed which is a whole different debate. But saying a 10-year-old doing a crime should be away for life. 
the idea is if you I guess it's if you ever you not you believe in reform I know some people say some people don't deserve to be reformed or given a second chance but at the age of 10 you could argue that they, they're still brains are still developing they're going to be different people and they're properly spoken to by therapists and prefer things reform would be possible and as well you can't change the law for a certain case maybe it'll change it later on but mm. them being tried as adults when previously it was stated that that wouldn't be the case it's... well we're going to go on to talk about this but it didn't this sentence obviously didn't rehabilitate John so I think it's a I think not yeah, but you can't ba- say not we, based on the outcome no it, I still think eight years is not long enough for the velocity of no, the crime they're not saying that sentence is minimum of, minimum of eight therefore there'd have to be an appeal for them to get out and then yeah, they could yeah. be denied parole can't they but yeah but the initial point I think the judge allowing for these photographs to be released the only thing I can fathom is that number one is quite a lenient sentence given I feel number that's two, not a reason they put their faces out there surely well, why else would you do it well I'm saying it's wrong they shouldn't have done it I don't think you should. I don't think the faces should have been published. Like the idea of if you are going to try and give them, I know I'm not. I'm totally obviously not on their side. But I'm saying if you're going to give them the chance to be rehabilitated, and you're putting, like you said, a target on their back everywhere yeah. they're going to go, even That's... with even with the best rehabilitation, they'll come out of different boys. They're never going to be ever forgiven of it, which shouldn't be forgiven of it. But that's factored into the judge's decision, though. The overwhelming. Pu- I mean, it says it's public interest, but I think the well, if anything, this should probably have guided him not to release these images. But the only thought process I can build up is that he's done this to take the heat off the sentence by the law he wasn't able to give a bigger sentence was he so probably in those facilities probably yeah until they become adults which will be at 18 yeah in my head the only reason i can come up with why he would have allowed these photos to be made public is kind of like he he is he, aware that's a lenient sentence or the, the he, most he, he yeah. so here also get yeah. them in 10 years yeah my hands are tied but these boys don't deserve to be forgiven, so here's so, their pictures, so go. they'll we'll let the public or whoever deal with them in their own way, yeah. that kind of thing, which, yeah. I mean, obviously he would never go on to admit that. If it, it does feel like that could be the only thing. I think so. December 1993, two weeks after the sentencing, Lord Chief Justice Lord Taylor of Gosforth increases Venables and Thompson's sentence to a minimum of 10 years. Denise starts to create a petition to keep the boys locked up for life. So yeah, I mean... From that point, we're saying there, in terms of maybe he felt this, it wasn't as strong as he could have given. He's given it a stronger sentence after a month, which can only be down to the outcry in the public. Well, yeah, because the eight-year sentence as well, if they're 10 at the time, does that bring them to a of age? Yeah. To did, then be yeah. able to review that sentence? or So I think that must be from just the uh, public outcry for how short that sentence is. 2nd of June 1994. The Home Secretary at the time, Michael Howard, is handed a petition with over 278,000 signatures in favouring of keeping John Venables and Robert Thompson inside of a prison for life. July of 1994. Following this petition, the boy's sentence is now raised, meaning that they must serve a minimum of 15 years instead of the original eight. June 1997, following debate that had engulfed the public around the fair treatment of the boys during their trial, the House of Lords criticises the rise in the sentencing. Following a discussion in the House of Lords, it is found that Michael Howard should never have intervened. Lord John Donaldson said that Mr Howard's actions were institutionalised vengeance by a politician playing to the gallery. So yeah, I mean, the law is the law. I feel like he's just gone, oh, the public outcry and he changes and make, make up for this. I guess with his name being linked to it, he didn't want to be seen as that person that was too lenient on them. On the 15th of March 1999, the European Commission of Human Rights found the trials of John Venables and Robert Thompson to have been conducted in a highly charged atmosphere. This has meant that it was believed that they were being given an unfair trial. 
They found that Article 6 had been breached. This article states that all have the right to a fair trial and that everyone is innocent until proven guilty. The article states that for there to be a fair trial, all on trial must fully comprehend the charges against them, have enough time to prepare for the trial, have access to legal assistance, have an equal opportunity to witness for their defence and to have an interpreter if they do not speak the same language as the one used within the court. Due to this, John Venables received 29000 and Robert Thompson received £15,000 in compensation. Which, again, further enrages the public. Mm. October of 2000, with their sentencing coming to an end, Home Secretary Jack Straw announces that he will not be setting an exact date for John Venables and Robert Thompson's release. On the 8th of January 2001, Ralph Bolger makes it public knowledge that he plans to hunt down the killers after their release. This burst of anger helps in allowing the boys to receive anonymity for the rest of their lives. I don't think Ralph would have seen that as a potential outcome when he makes these very public threats. Obviously he had the, the, the whole country on his side and is highly emotional by the, the prospect of them being out in public again. So his claims have now given anonymity to Thompson and Venables. Judge Elizabeth Butler Sloss said she was convinced that their lives are genuinely at risk as well as their physical safety if their new identities and whereabouts became public knowledge. On the 22nd of June 2001, both John Venables and Robert Thompson are released and are protected under new identities. They were aged 18 at the time of their release. Upon their release, the boys were given strict rules to not ever make contact with each other, to not return to Liverpool and to not re-offend. So that was the timeline of the case. We're now going to go into a quite a lot of aftermath there's there's so much that's happened since and there's yeah a lot of controversy surrounding uh, the following events so since the murder first captured headlines people have questioned what could have caused these two 10 year old children to commit such a horrific crime many have pointed to the horror films and the accessibility that the young children had it is alleged as we mentioned earlier that the boys had watched one of the child's play movies before going on to commit the atrocities they would be known for the scientific evidence to say that this could have caused the boys to commit such a heinous act differentiates depending on which source you read. It may have influenced the boys but whether it caused them to kill James Bolger is unclear. Others have blamed poor parenting. It is clear that Robert Thompson had a troubled home life and seeing his mother turn to alcohol as a coping mechanism would have impacted him significantly. Mr Justice Morland commented, the home background, upbringing, family circumstances, parental behaviour and relationships were needed in the public domain so that informed and worthwhile debate can take place for the public good in the case of grave crimes by young children. This case sparked and still sparks debate around whether parents should also be blamed when a child commits such an offence. What do you think to that? It's like with parents being punished now with kids playing truant. falls upon them now, doesn't it? I think... Like I said, when the kids you know, being out until God knows what hour at night, misbehaving, stealing, and the teachers, I know it allegedly said they did try and report these things in. I think both sides, it could have been, social services should have been yeah. intervened a lot earlier. I well, agree, yeah. And the fact that Thompson's mother would not call police about her child going missing during certain hours. Because she did want social services sticking their exactly. oar in. Yeah. What a line. Yeah. I definitely think there are questions to be posed at the parents of Thompson and Venables. Some have suggested that the boys committed this crime for sexual gratification. Although this could be a strong argument, neither of the boys have ever confessed to having a sexual motive for the killing. Doubt is cast over this as we will go on to talk about John Venables' re-offences. The case of James Bolger still continues to shock the nation. Many still believe the boys should never have been released from confinement. There continues to be a mass anger surrounding the treatment of the boys, with many thinking that they were given too light a sentence back in 1993. 
It has since been revealed that the boys would have their own private rooms and were allowed to cook for their families when they visit their facility. In addition to this, the boys were allowed mobility, which meant they were allowed to visit public areas such as sports centres and football matches. Furthermore, the boys were allowed to undertake the GCSEs and job managed to get GCSEs in maths, English and science. So the mobility thing is part of the re rehabilitation. They would go with, um, essentially someone from the facility would go with them, just kind of you slowly introducing them back into society rather than going, you're free now after not having any experience. Yeah. Obviously, with the GCSEs, the boys actually were able to relatively well GCSEs in that environment rather than at school. So they were trying to make them, you know, as rehabilitation is supposed to do, it's improve their likelihood of, of going back out into society. And also, if they can leave their GCSEs and, and you know, some qualifications in, in the eyes of the facility, obviously, that's a big plus as well. Throughout the episode, we've talked about the perspective of James Bolger's parents. But I also have some quotes here from the parents of Venables and Thompson that talked about kind of not trying to justify it whatsoever but trying to understand what it was that made their son or their sons do what they did and both of them weirdly tried to blame the other family's son so the parents of venables said he did like to be liked and loved to have friends and he has got involved with the wrong person what he's done is wrong so he needs to be punished what upsets me is i've no way of bringing him up for the rest of his young years so he is going to lose all of his childhood this is venables father neil he goes on to add, I feel for that family, I feel so sorry for them, but I have lost my son as well. We will never be able to do fun things anymore, football, snooker, things like that. Which I just think is an outrageous thing to say in public. I mean, a lot of that you would just keep, assume, it well, keep yourself, but you also assume that that would be how they're feeling. I don't think it's necessary for him to come out and say it. It's like when you see a lot of these um, true crime documentaries of, of family visiting the person who's the, who the murderer, obviously it's, it's a connection between parents and, and family and you know, blood thick in the water, that kind of expression. Yeah, I don't, yeah, I don't see what the benefit would be for him saying that. I mean, like, obviously give your sympathies to the family and, you know, the guilt you feel. Yeah, but I just wouldn't play the I've lost my son too card. Mm -hmm. it's, yeah, especially with tension so high. And at the same time, Robert Thompson's mum, Anne, immediately went into hiding after the trial. Apparently she was effectively living in hiding, unable to live anything like a normal life because of the constant fear of revenge attacks. In the middle of the trial, she said, yes, Robert did tell some lies, but he also told the truth about one thing from the beginning to end. He did not kill that baby. John did. I honestly do believe him. They always blame the parents. It's a very difficult situation. When you are getting no support as a family, you're alone and you face the world alone. The same thing as I'm doing now. I mean, if you need the support, the social services like we mentioned yeah. or you know but yeah playing the victim a bit there as well and i imagine it's a lot easier for you to sleep at night by thinking your son didn't do it so a couple more uh, quotes firstly from michael uh, james bolger's brother who was born eight months after james was murdered and he was speaking just before the 30th anniversary of james's murder michael bolger or now michael fergus said that the two killers robbed me of my childhood my brother's killers will never be forgiven. They took away my older brother, who I never got to meet. Which, yeah, I mean, there are so many victims attached to, to James's family as well, but it's an interesting way to even think about. Mm. If you imagine you had you found out you had a sibling that you'd never met because of something like this happening. Yeah, and the ripple effects of how it's going to affect your family. God. Yeah. I imagine, can you only imagine how um, 
protected the mum was over him as yeah, well after that exactly and he and michael james's brother also went on to have children of his own and he totally now understands what his parents went through and then denise james's mother who we've mentioned she wrote a book about life with james and life you know trying to cope with james's murder she said when you've lost a child you go through stages you blame yourself you blame others but at the end of it there are only two people to blame in this and that's the two that took him but it did take me a long time to realize that and get my head around it it wasn't me that killed james so the parents i mean we'll talk about it a bit more the parents of james bolger have been trolled via various social media platforms for all the um, memorial and uh, charitable work that they've been doing uh, around this case but also at the time and still now a lot of the public did blame denise for letting go of james and taking her eye off him and things like that but it was as well talk about being in wrong time wrong place like those boys had been looking to lure someone away for quite some time i mean you imagine it really parents even now after the case of this has happened if they're in, in a butcher let's say they're very rarely holding their child hand or holding them the whole time the last thing you're thinking is oh i should because they might possibly get abducted yeah yeah i mean i'm not gonna pass blame on anyone else there no, but i mean no but both denise and ralph have faced so much well not not ralph so much but denise so so much criticism well, for her parenting it's, it's, it's not at all the same but you know it's like the maddie case a lot of people yeah. obviously very different in terms of you know the length of left alone and stuff like that and people accusing them of actually being the ones to, but yeah there's you think how much they get trolled as well yeah you can only imagine if this happened now with twitter and everything like that how much abuse they'd be getting now as well yeah. horrific since his release, it appears as though Robert Thompson has stayed out of trouble with the law. There was a fake news story that suggested he was violent, but this story was sold to the press by a fellow young offender. Reports state that he's now openly gay and living with his long-term partner. It has been alleged that his partner knows his boyfriend's real identity. The same cannot be said for John Benables. Since his release, John Benables has reoffended. I'd probably say reoffended on many occasions or multiple times. Since his release, John Benables has reoffended in many occasions and or multiple, multiple times. times. Jinx. I don't know if she was working that way. Since his release, John Benables has reoffended on many occasions. In 2008, John was arrested following a fight in a bar. However, charges were dropped when he agreed to attend an alcohol awareness course. In the same year, he was caught possessing a small amount of cocaine. Again, charges were dropped. Things take a horrific turn when in 2010, Benables is arrested following a child pornography charge as he is found with a thousand images of children. He was given a new false identity and sent back to the confinement of prison. Yet in 2013, he was released. So it's alleged that bar fight as well was because... He had had a few drinks and made his actual identity aware to people in the bar. But again, that's, that's speculation. John did not stop offending there. In 2017, he was arrested for the exact same charge. However, this time it has been reported that John had a paedophile manual. For this offence, John was only sentenced to 40 months in prison. Despite this, in October of 2020, a parole report advised that he stayed in confinement because of his attraction to sexual violence and that, in his own words, I've had urges, inquisitive. So quite a lot to unpack there. So for research of this, Ben has actually got with him the paedophile menu. Um, yeah. It's actually paedophile automatic, isn't it? Really? Oh, there God. it is. So that could actually um, lean towards what we were saying earlier on about the sexual gratification. Obviously him saying he has certain urges and being attracted to uh, young boys as well is, yeah. It, it kind of could lead to that. In November of 2020, John explicitly asked not to be released from prison. I want to stay in. It sounded just like that. Yeah. 
A source speaking to the newspaper The Sun stated Venables told the board he did not seek release because he's worried that he'll re-offend. On the outside, he finds it difficult to make friends or gain employment and he seeks out drink, sex and pornography as a way of adding excitement to this life and that's a potent mix. That's a bit close to heaven. So it kind of circles back there to, to John and Robert as children, not wanting to go home, wanting to stay out late, play on the train tracks. He now, John, does not want to be reintegrated I, into society. I, I think him saying about it being to stop and reoffending, I think it's just more safety, isn't it? Someone's going to kill me. Yeah, yeah I, I would agree with you. It is now being questioned whether John should be rehabilitated abroad. Not only would it be cheaper for the UK in the long run, but it would also mean that the chances of him being recognised would be significantly lowered. However, in direct response to this, New Zealand's Prime Minister, Jacinda Ardern, said, my advice would be don't bother applying for residency in New Zealand. Yeah, I mean, that's such a fucking United Kingdom thing to do. Oh, we've got this paedophile we don't want, and it's also a child murderer. Can you take him? No. He's our little fucking so we have to deal with him over here. Here, here. Pictures have circulated the internet claiming to be pictures of the updated identities of Robert Thompson and John Venables. To be fair, I did Google that yeah, now. Me too. It's extremely important to note that although these photos have circulated around the internet, if you come across these photos, you must not share them. Anyone who shares or publicises photos of the boys' new identities will be charged with two years of prison time, as it will be a breach of the anonymity provided to them by the judge when they were first sentenced. It is believed that the images of John Venables were seen by inmates at the prison where he was serving time for child pornography. The prisoners were angry when they found out that they were sharing a prison with John Venables. Someone threw hot water over him and many brandished him as a dirty nonce. There's a video doing rounds at the moment of a former inmate claiming to have beaten John Venables within an inch of his life yeah, and the, then being allowed off parole. Prison guard essentially saying, "This, I've got news that, that yeah. upstairs, I'm going to let you out at the same time. And basically, yeah, he was allowed to kind of go and absolutely beat the living shit out of him. He basically claims he thought there's no chance I'm being let out now, uh, apparently. The, and this is him saying the probation officer or the warden then came back round and realised who he had just assaulted or assaulted the previous day and, and signed it off. Well, he made it very aware, the prison officer, with um, a piece of paper, they kind of left it like, in view of him and he could see the name John Melibos was on there, which yeah. which would then mean he definitely did beat up that person. Yeah, I mean, a bit of a little fact here. I think I might have said this before on another podcast. It's, it's definitely one of Jack Dean's favourite facts. Where the nonce originally comes from. Oh, no idea. Not on... No sense. Normal. Not oh. on... Oh, you do that? Yeah. You would do your little videos. Not that. Uh, <laughs> as it, Dan likes to watch paedophile hunter videos. Hunter. Not on normal courtyard exercise. So basically a prisoner who is likely to be you know, beaten up for what the crimes they committed. The acronym, nonce, will be written on a piece of, paper, piece of paper for the guards to not let them out with everyone else at the same time. Right. Okay. That could be... Play the jingle once. Interesting fact, interesting fact. Much, much more interesting than the other interesting facts. Denise and Ralph Bolger would unfortunately decide to divorce. It is unclear but can be presumed that the significant loss of their baby boy caused strain on the relationship. Both have since remarried and both now have other children. So Denise now has three adult sons and at Christmas she sets a dinner place for all of her children, including a plate that she sets for James. Denise continues her fight for justice for her son 30 years after his death. She recently spoke to ITV News and clearly still has guilt for her son's death. 30 years later she still commented, I should never have let go of his hand. 
She has vehemently stood by the belief that the children who killed her child got too lenient of a sentence. She also has said that she was not made aware of the killer's release until after they had walked away from their confinement, which I thought they had to like were legally obligated to inform victims' family members of stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, I did as well. Mm. I thought it was all of appeals sometimes. They, yeah. Um, victims agree be involved in that side of things as well. Sadly, Denise never felt listened to. She repeatedly made it public that she feared the killers would reoffend, and sadly, she was proven right. She believes the justice system overrules the victims of crime and instead it focuses on the well being of the criminals. However, Denise's persistence did allow for the introduction of the victim impact statements to be heard in court. Denise continues to make TV appearances and has written a book titled I Let Him Go. Denise has since set up a charity on James's 21st birthday entitled the James Bolger Memorial Trust. Denise wants him to be cherished and remembered for the beautiful little boy with the big sparkling smile and the blonde hair that bounced in the air as he ran everywhere at speed. The charity allows nominated children who have been affected by bereavement or bullying or crime to spend time away with their families or by giving them a suitable reward. Ralph Bolger has also made TV appearances since his son's death. He has also written a book called My James. He has petitioned for the release of John Venable's true identity to be made public. He commented that he is terrified that Venables may harm another child like My James. However, the petition was ultimately rejected. Nearing the 25th anniversary of his son's death, Ralph commented how his daughter visited the grave of her little brother. He said, My beautiful daughter makes my life worth living, and it feels right to bring her to say hello to James now. I don't want her to live in the shadow of her brother's dark and brutal killing. Instead, I want her to learn the happy things about his life, and how he was a much-loved and beautiful little boy. He also stated, When I see her getting up to her antics, it makes me laugh. It helps me to remember the very best things about James and all the fun and laughter he crammed into his short life. I want to share these things with my daughter so that she gets to know all of the wonderful things about her big brother. James would have adored his baby sister as she bears so many of his characteristics. Most of all, his cheekiness and sense of fun. As of recording this episode, within the past week, one of the boys who found James Bolger's deceased body has died whilst in police custody. We haven't really spoken about the boys who found... Yeah. That would affect their lives for the rest of their life as well. James Riley was 44 years old and was known for having a drug addiction. Sarah Holt, James Riley's defence, said he had an addiction for all his adult life and in fact most of his adolescence. His problems can be traced back to when he was 14 when he experienced a very traumatic event. It was an event I suggest that meant he is suffering from PTSD. Though not diagnosed, he never sought counselling, he tells me. So yeah, it just goes on to show that this affected, I mean, obviously this, it's, it's implied there that he went on to take drugs to deal with his PTSD, which he could never get over. I think I've used the metaphor many times before, but the ripple effect from anything like this is going to affect everyone surrounding the families, uh, even the family of John and Robert and the siblings and people like being misidentified as them in their later life. People yeah. would kind of be attacked and, you know, people putting false information and sharing pictures, which actually aren't the perpetrators in this case. It is out there if you want to Google it and search for it, but obviously it's very clear what you can and can't do with those images and, and so many people have been falsely witch hunted under yeah. the premise that uh, you know they are the individuals relating to this case uh, under new identities but it's yeah it's a very very harrowing case it still causes a great deal of hurt and there's a lot of emotion attached to the to the case to this day which is why we completely appreciate that uh, you know a number of people may have given this week's episode a miss but yes that was the case of the murder of James Bolger which I honestly didn't think we'd cover Definitely not this series, no. perhaps in future, but uh, yeah, a very, very upsetting case indeed.
obviously is a case that we, we know um, divides a lot of opinion, uh, cause a lot of heartache and outrage. And I think that's probably noticeable why we've been slightly less uh, jokey in, in this case than we are in other cases. But yeah, we, we always think it's important to cover these cases. So that brings us to the end of episode 11 of series seven. Next week, the big, big finale, bringing the close to the series. You know, Tom did lay a little secret easter egg in the uh, in the previous episode around what we might be covering so trickle back and I mean, uh, it is it's around easter right now when we thought yeah, so. yeah so it's a topical little egg that's fallen out of his ass <laughs> sorry <laughs> sorry so very relevant little egg that he's laid for you what's everything you say on just gross Fun. gross oh gross, gross. Yeah, gross. Yeah. we haven't done lookalikes for this case we just didn't think it was the right thing to do we're also not going to be doing kind of cult reads uh, for the cult of ICMAP. But, you know, if you just can't wait until next week, send us an email, hello at icmap.co.uk or join the cult over at icmap.co.uk where we have 105 additional episodes. We're adding to that pot every single week. We've got another big one released this week, the Christchurch Mosque Massacre, which is another very harrowing case indeed. But yeah, we're excited for the finale next week. We're mm -hmm. excited to bring the series to a close. So yeah, there you go. The audience vote case. I've not forgotten the 2,000 or so people that have voted. Christmas card will not be coming your way. We hope people found it interesting. Yeah, we'll be back next week with another big, big case. Another big, big case. The, the big series big finale, case. one that we thought a late substitute in, but yeah, it's very excited for it. I know a lot of people enjoy the kind of speculation-y ones, so... Yeah, I think you guys are going to enjoy that one. But anyway, guys, like we always say, we say this all the time. Keep doing what you're doing. Unless it's working as a receptionist at an ice cream factory, but never putting any messages through to Mr. Whippy. Because that'll get you, yeah, you get on fired. the bad side of you Whippy. You get cold shoulder. And there are hundreds of thousands of applicants for the role. That's good. That is good. But no screwballs, please. Because <laughs> you will. That's not Apparently she was very flirty of him, but then often would I kind of pull back and she, she screwballed him. Screwballed. Anyway, guys, <laughs> two pip. All best. It's like blue, blue, blue. Cut! 12th of February. No. He's <laughs> in a funny mood. Pew, pew! Tron! Come on, everyone! Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. I Could Murder a Podcast is proudly part of the ACAST Creator Network. For hundreds of extra minisodes and other content, along with our private Discord server and live Q&As, exclusive merch and much more, consider subscribing to icmap.co.uk.